This is a um, period for asking questions and giving answers. But today only one question, because I think most people didn't know where the paper was. Or maybe just no questions. Interesting question. It says, with so many poor people in the world, so many do not have food to eat, why do we spend so much money on huge temples, churches, etc.? We import expensive items to furnish these temples. Doesn't the Buddha teach us not to have greed or ego? I once told a friend, if I won the lottery, I would give him one million. And he said, if he won, he would give me one million. Then I started to think, if I gave one million to the poor in Thailand, that would be 5,000 baht for 5,000 people. Why do we have so much need for greed? <laughs> Well, greed is obviously a, it's a mental state, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a desire, it's a way of thinking, an attitude, and then we have behavior based on greed coming from that. But then everything we do in life is not necessarily coming from greed, is it? You can uh, learn that as you meditate. You'll see sometimes when you're meditating... You might have mental states of greed arise. You might have a thought of greed arise. And then there'll be other times when there's no greed in the mind. There's no one in the world who has greed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the greed comes and goes. And this is what meditation teaches us, is that all these mental states, and particularly these, these ones we call mental defilements, like greed, anger, and different kinds of delusion. And the word we use is, uh, we say they're conditions of mind. They arise causing, according to certain causes. And then they appear in the mind, they... Uh, mix, you could say mix with our mind for a while and then they pass away again and the mind in itself is not inherently or naturally greedy you could say, it's not like greed is there all the time it's a mental state that comes and goes the Buddha sometimes he compared the mind to water if you have clear, unpolluted, uh, clean water in a jar or something, as long as you don't add anything to it, then that water remains clear and clean. But if you were to take some dye, some liquid dye, coloured dye, red coloured dye, say, you add it to that water, well, the water becomes red coloured. If you have a way to remove that dye from the water, you can filter it out or do some chemical reaction to get the water out, well then the water will return to its natural state, which is clear. So you can compare all these mental states and these mental defilements we experience are like colors, a colored dye that affects water, changes its color. 
but the water and the dye are not the same thing. The mind and its greed and the mind and anger are not the same thing. Their conditions of mind, their moods, their mental states that come up and then go away again. So that means as uh, Buddhist practitioners, listening to the Buddha's teachings, studying them, we start to get an understanding that at least there is a chance for us as human beings to free ourselves from these different mental defilements that cause us so much suffering. Otherwise, there'd be no point practicing. There'd be no point meditating if your mind is always going to have greed or anger affecting it indefinitely for the rest of your life and next life as well. (laughs) If it was just going to be stuck in greed and anger all the time, well, there's nothing to do, is there? You just have to bear with it and, and suffer with it. But the Buddha pointed out through his own practice, he practiced, he did his meditation, he said, oh, we can actually free ourselves from greed, the effects of greed. We can free ourselves from anger and the effects of anger. And that's the purpose of Buddhist practice. And there's different levels we do this on. So, as I was talking this morning a little bit, you know, on the you might say the the basic level or level you might even call preparation. Like when kids go to school, they start with prep, don't they, before school. You know, prep is like the practice of just basic kindness and generosity in life. Learning to develop those skillful attitudes in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act. This is countering or going against our um, the conditioning power or the conditioning effect of greed it's going against greed so as I gave earlier that example Ajahn Chah talked about a very good example if you're hungry and you want to eat because you're hungry and you have a couple of apples the power of hunger is a very powerful causal or conditioning force on us so very easy to become greedy when you eat but it doesn't mean you say you always have to eat with greed it's not unless it's not um, necessarily going to be that there'll be greed in your mind when you eat but it's very easy to become greedy over food because hunger is such a powerful experience as a human being So especially if you haven't eaten for a long time, the chances of greed arising increase. So if you haven't eaten for a whole day and then somebody puts a nice table of food in front of you, well, you probably might feel some greed for that food. When you see it, you smell it, because of the power of hunger. But Ajahn Chah gave the example, he said, imagine you have two apples, a big apple and a small apple, you notice you've got greed, you're certainly hungry, and you have a friend who also is maybe hungry. The normal thing, the normal habit maybe for human beings would be, okay, give them the small one and I eat the big one. We do that every day, don't we, in different ways. We tend to keep the best for ourselves or the most for ourselves and give away 
the smaller for others. And it's good, I mean, even giving away something small is still good, but we tend to do that more easily. The hard part would be to give away the big apple to your friend and keep the small one for yourself, especially if you're hungry. Why is that? Well, greed has its object. Right? When you're greedy, it's usually greed for something. You think, this will make me happy. And this will make, give me some pleasure. This will solve my problem. This will uh, do the thing for me that I want. You know, greed has its object, but the greed is always based on things like sense pleasures. So like, you know, greed for taste, greed for um, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch different objects and we're focusing on the pleasure of that that thing, that experience that's what greed comes from you keep thinking about the pleasure you'll get you'll get that thing and then you'll be happy and it's not untrue either I mean, you do get some happiness from indulging your greed you can see that you, you do, if you've got greed in the mind and you get the thing you want, you'll get some, some happiness. But what the Buddha pointed out is it's very temporary happiness. It doesn't last very long. And it's also a cause for suffering to arise afterwards. Or even before. Like The, the very experience of greed itself is suffering in that the mind is not peaceful. It's agitated, not settled in itself because it keeps thinking about that thing you want and the pleasure that you want and so on so as an experience it's, it's not peaceful and then even if you get the thing you want the happiness you get the pleasure you get doesn't last in its nature the pleasures of the senses say they don't, they don't last they don't stay very long so then the greed quickly turns into maybe fear that you'll lose the thing you want or the thing you've got or it'll turn into frustration as you lose the pleasure that you were seeking you can't hold on to it so then you become upset concerned that you've lost your pleasure and back to oh, how can I get some more of it <laughs> or make it last longer and so on and I'm, I'm talking very generally here, but you can look in your lives and you can probably find many, many examples of this where greed is at work. We're seeking various kinds of experiences, material things, wealth, so on. Getting it and then worried when we'll lose it or if we can get it back again and so on. This is all the suffering associated with greed. But there's a higher happiness when you sometimes you let go of your greed. So Ajahn Chah's example was just a simple example of maybe letting go of some greed by giving away your big apple to your friend and keeping the small one. So you still have some food. You're not starving. You've got your food. You've got an apple to eat. But your friend is actually getting the, the big apple what you're doing is you're giving away some of your greed, aren't you? Not giving it to your friend, but just giving it up. Not following it, not indulging it. And what's the result of that? If you can do it, if you can make that effort to give away that which is hard to give away, well, you experience some happiness, don't you? But it's a much more subtle, refined kind of happiness. The happiness of generosity of giving 
it brings you a good feeling, but it's a different kind of feeling than, than indulging greed. When you give up greed, you, you get a sense of release. So the Buddha gave similes, like, you know, release from, say, like you've been in debt, say you've had a, bought a house and you've been in debt to the bank for 15, 20 years paying off a mortgage. The day you pay off your mortgage, you're bound to feel a sense of release and relief that you've given up that debt now, finished that debt. You feel so happy. When you give away greed, it's a bit like that. You experience a much higher, more refined, more subtle kind of happiness from having let go of some of your possessiveness, some of your attachment. And if you do that mindfully, you appreciate what you've done and why, then you experience great happiness there. And the happiness, just the practice of generosity can last a lifetime. If you've practiced some generosity consciously, mindfully, you've, you've given up some of your greed to help somebody else or do something for somebody else, and you knew you were doing something and it was hard to do at the time maybe, you had to put effort into it, well you'll remember that all your life and even on your deathbed. As monks we talk to people when they're dying sometimes and people on their deathbed, one of the most powerful memories they have is the generosity that they've performed in their life. It's one of the biggest sources of happiness for people in their old age or dying Years is to remember generosity that they've performed. That could be with family. You know, if you bring up a family, you have to be very, very generous because you have to give all your time and energy and resources to your family members over and over again. And generosity given in uh, society, so you know, charity work, helping the sick, the poor, the needy. Supporting various good causes, sometimes giving your money away, sometimes giving your time, sometimes giving your sharing your knowledge, your skills. Sometimes it's in a formal way, you, know, you give to a, a certain charity or something. Sometimes it's informal, you just do a favour for somebody. Maybe somebody is in a big mess and you help them out at one point or they're, in a, they're stuck in some situation and you just give them some support to get out of that difficult situation. And that memory will probably follow you right through to the end of your days. So generosity brings us a lot of happiness, good memories, a very positive, powerful um, kind of karma that affects us often right through our lives. And obviously if it's practiced regularly, then you're regularly developing a source of happiness for yourself. You're freeing yourself from some of your greed, your attachment, your possessiveness. It's a constant, nourishing, wholesome uh, influence on the mind. The impression it leaves on your mind is good, over and over again. And obviously there's many other wholesome benefits when you practice generosity is you, you, you usually gain some friends <laughs> people who are generous other people tend to uh, appreciate it uh, not always but sometimes so you often have friends 
you often have other people appreciate your help so when sometimes when we need help if we practice generosity in the past then people will come and help us when we need it it's reciprocal it's karmic it comes back to us in other other ways at other times people come back and help us sometimes other people help us and we we appreciate it so that spurs us on or encourages us to practice generosity ourselves and we say oh that, they were so good to me i want to do something either back to that person help them out in some way out of gratitude or sometimes help somebody else again but because we we can see the value of of helping others and being generous and kind to others we want to do it ourselves because we we appreciate what we the help we received and we want to do the same for others because we can see the value of it you know, the buddha said you know, one or two two people two kinds of people that are rare in this world are people with gratitude and people who try to repay the the help that they've received from others pay it back and the buddhist words are gadanyu gatawati they're just appreciating the the help you've received from your parents say or your teachers or your family members or from other people just appreciating that is already for some people is very rare <laughs> some people they don't think about the help they've received they don't notice it or they don't think of it even harder or even rare is the person who actually having appreciated the help they've received actually tries to repay it so you know repaying some of the help we re- receive from our parents you know how often do we just forget our parents and we're caught up in our own particular business or our own issues you know, sometimes it's important to sit down and think through who's helped me and actually when appreciation comes over you want to do something back in some way or other you don't have to do exactly what they did for you but you can do it in display in other ways but to sometimes to help those who've helped us is a very skillful attitude because what it does is it opens up your mind brings you a lot of happiness and joy it's a beautiful thing to see if you see somebody who's showing that they appreciate the debt of gratitude they have to somebody who's helped them and they're trying to show it or pay it back in some way do something out of kindness and appreciation back to the person who'd helped them it's a very beautiful thing to see just in the same way if you see someone who's ungrateful you know what does that look like you know when you when you actually see someone displaying that they or showing they have no gratitude to someone who's helped them it's very ugly isn't it we don't like to see it it's not pleasant to see you know people who uh, may be under the power of their greed or their anger or something or other they they try to ignore the good others have done to them or they just deny it or they're too distracted or caught up in other things that they don't remember those who have helped them whatever it's an ugly state when you don't appreciate the good people have done for you so and the buddha is talking about the quality of the mind here and the 
skillful states of mind that we develop as we practice. You know, these we call beautiful states of mind, the beautiful dhammas. Because they're beautiful to, for us to experience and they're beautiful for others to see. And the opposite is what we call mental defilement. That which is defiling is ugly. You know, it's like if you have cloth, if you put, if you stain that cloth with uh, ink or food or something that's that's going to make that cloth look unpleasant by by staining it, you know, it becomes ugly. That cloth. In the same way, our minds, if we keep letting them get stained by greed or anger or the different kinds of unwholesome mental states that we can experience. If we do nothing about them, then our mind becomes like stained, becomes ugly. You know, if you ever see somebody who's very greedy, actually indulging their greed, it doesn't look nice, does it? <laughs> you want to turn away. Uh, or if you look at yourself, if you notice yourself when you're being very greedy, and you remember it, or you're just observing yourself, it's not a nice, pretty, not a pretty sight. <laughs> or somebody who's angry. If you see somebody who's angry, very, very angry, and they're showing it in their face, the way they look, or they're acting in anger, or speaking in anger, you know, nobody likes it. It's ugly. And that's the nature of defilement, it's ugly. Even animals know that. Yeah, even if you have a pet, like a dog or a cat or something, or a bird, and if you're in a bad mood, and you're shouting or being rude or angry, you know, even a dog will not like it. Because <laughs> they can tell, the dog has a, has a mind as well, they can tell and they don't like it. They'll run away or they'll, they'll shrink away. And humans as well, we don't like it when people are greedy or angry. So this is this is where you get your motivation, isn't it, to let go of these these unwholesome mental states by seeing that they can be let go of. You know, they're temporary states, temporary thoughts and moods. They're ugly in their nature. They don't lead to peace and happiness. So, you know, the wise thing to do then is to, having recognised that, the wise thing to do is let them go, abandon them. And this, you build up to this, this, this is a skill that you build up just like any other skill in life. You start on this level of just say basic kindness, generosity, practice towards our family members, friends, and then society as a whole. It's one way. But then you start going inwards and you actually start cleaning up your mind inside. So all the thoughts inwardly that come up just as you meditate like this you might notice you have a thought of greed or selfishness or anger or jealousy all these kind of more mentally defiling states when you notice them with mindfulness then the Buddha said well when you notice then the right thing to do then at that point is to practice letting go of them giving them up and this is what we call right effort in Buddhist practice is the effort to abandon unwholesome mental states so first of all you have to recognize them otherwise you won't, won't think of abandoning them but once you've recognized them then you have to try and abandon them not indulge them not follow them and that's where a lot of the effort in our meditation goes isn't it because we're working with ourselves we have different kinds of thoughts and moods and feelings come up and a lot of them are 
difficult to let go of. So it, we have to bring up effort, we have to work at it. And that's why coming together on occasions like this, you know, it's valuable to do it with other people as well, with the Sangha, with others, because that helps us to get some extra effort up, to try a little bit harder, to be more mindful, um, and then to, to let go of some of the, these mental defilements that we're seeing coming up. It helps if you're with other people who are practicing, because if you see other people letting go of their greed, letting go of their anger, well, that gives you the inspiration and the support to do it yourself. You know, if you didn't come here, if you went <laughs> off with some people today, maybe you went out partying, drinking, or even worse, you, know, you went out to rob a bank or something. <laughs> if you were with people like that, well, your, your mind would be going in a different direction, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be working to give up your greed or getting any support from that. You'd be indulging. <laughs> So just how you spend your time, who you're with, these things affect our practice as well. This is why it's, it's valuable to come to places like this, Buddhist monasteries where you get to meet other people who practice, and you hear Dhamma, uh, you get a, hopefully get a good example from the other people who are practicing. You get reminded to practice. You know, the question... I sort of gone off it a bit, but I mean, the question was partly talking about, you know, why do we build big halls? Well, as you can see, the hall is full today. So it's obviously not a, a hall that is empty and unused. Some days of the year it's too small even. In fact, the very first time we finished this hall and had our first katina, it was already too small. <laughs> so just in terms of size you know size is a bit of a, an uncertain thing sometimes a hall can seem small sometimes it seems big but the main thing is if if you're building a hall like this you know it has a purpose doesn't it it's not just built for our, you know to make us look good <laughs> or to um you know, just go around boasting and say, oh, we've got a nice big hall with fancy furnishings or something like that. And it's a build for a very important purpose, a number of purposes, actually. I mean, this hall is called an ubozata hall. Ubozot. Ubozata is a place where Buddhist monks can be ordained. It has a seema, has a boundary that's been officially uh, consecrated and established. So you can have ordinations. Uh, the monks can perform all their ceremonies, like we have um, a fortnightly uh, recitation of the monks' rules, which helps to keep up our discipline so we're practicing properly. It also has uh, value because it's a place where we can teach meditation, like today. And we can practice meditation, like today. And we can have other various ceremonies and activities can go on in a hall like this. You know, it's, it's all right being idealistic, or we shouldn't have expensive buildings. But, you know, before we had this hall, some of you probably remember, we used to do things in a tent. <laughs> and on a day like today, it wouldn't have been very nice, you know, in a cold, windy, wet day in, the, in a tent trying to meditate. It gets hard. In the first year we had our tent, the monks were sitting in the katina, everyone got wet. And I don't mean wet above, I mean wet below, because we were sitting on the ground and all the water was seeping up, so we were sitting in puddles. And I think a lot of the lay people got wet as well. 
Or the first katina we had, I remember we had chanting in the evening. And uh, I don't know whether it was just the wind or it was the devas and the nagas, I don't know. But the whole tent almost blew away (laughs) as we were chanting. So a hall does have some benefit and some use to us. And when you build a hall, I mean this hall was dedicated first to the Buddha and then it was dedicated to our teacher Ajahn Chah. So even the hall, a hall like this has its own um, purpose. You know, it's, it's a place you can come in and reflect and remember your teacher, the Buddha. You can remember your teacher, our, say our modern teacher in the modern era is Ajahn Chah. So we called it the uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah Hall. So it's a place you can think of your teacher, think of the teachings the teacher gave, try and practice them. So it's a place you, you, know, you, you use to bring up these kind of wholesome qualities like faith, respect, gratitude and then bring up mindfulness in your meditation. So that's actually, you, know, you, you could look at it in one way and say, oh, it's a very grand hall, spent a lot of money. <laughs> but another way you could say, oh, it's actually a very useful place. If we didn't have this place, we'd all be worse off, wouldn't we? We wouldn't be able to practice meditation so conveniently or hear the teachings so conveniently. Another way of looking at it, you could say, well, a lot of people gave up a lot for this hall to be built. I know because I was the project manager. (laughs) Uh, Many months of uh, meetings and uh, effort. And not just me, many people. We had a whole team of people who helped design it. Many things go into a hall. Anyone involved in the building industry knows that. You design a building. A lot of that was volunteer work. People who could have earned money and... uh, you know, use that money for other things. They decided to give up their time to help design the hall and oversee the building of it and the engineering, the electrics, all the different aspects. And of course, the cost of the hall. People gave up different amounts of money to help fund the building of the hall. Practicing generosity. And that was all freely given and nobody was forced to give the money. Why did they give the, the donations for that? It's because they're happy to, because they see the benefit of it. They see the benefit of supporting a, a project. They see the benefit of letting go of their own attachments and uh, possessiveness. So, you know, there's, there's one way you look at it is, oh, it's just a very grand hall waste of money or something. Could have spent the money on something else. Another way you look at it, you could say, well, it's actually a, a skillful way for people to practice in different ways from the very beginning from the designing and the building of the hall the funding of the hall and now to the actual use of the hall meditating and hearing the teachings so even a refuge in other more ways than one like it's our religious or spiritual refuge it's a place we come to practice it's also a fire refuge. <laughs> it was built as a fire refuge. It was built with a steel, steel structure and bricks and concrete. The whole structure is very fireproof. So the, the CFA came and they said, well, this is a very good place for you to go in a bushfire. They actually want to make it a refuge of last resort for the local area because it's 
built quite well and it's surrounded by open area. It's got a fire hydrant outside. So I guess you could say, well, we shouldn't have built this hall, just let the monks burn. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could say, oh, it's useful that we've got a place to run to if there's a bushfire. Someone might say, oh, well, you never get bushfires. Well, of course we did, didn't we, two years ago. What happened during the bushfire? We actually got ash raining down on us. It wasn't burning ash by the time it reached here. It was it was dry, but you could see the possibility. If there was a bushfire close, we would need somewhere to hide or run to, be to be in. So it has a, it has many uses. This building. So it's important to go deeper. Maybe when you have. You know, you do dana or practice generosity or do these things. Well, it is important to think of the the purpose. Why do we practice generosity and how does it help us? What's the purpose of it? What's the role of it in our life? And you'll see actually the whole world is, is supported by the practice of generosity, isn't it? Kindness, generosity. If If those qualities start to disappear from society, then what will happen? Everyone will just become even more selfish more competitive, there'll be more conflict, won't they? People will be less happy in themselves, there'll be more fear, more aggression, more anxiety. But when generosity and kindness is practiced in the world, then you know, it's a, such a powerful positive force for binding people together in a family or in a country or in a society. It helps us all to be uh, happier in ourselves and to get through the difficulties of life. You know, it's, if you're meeting an obstacle in your life, in your practice or in your daily life, your work, you know, if you've got the kindness and support of others around you, it's much easier to deal with that, that obstacle, isn't it? And thankfully, you know, say a country like Australia still has a large amount of generosity practice. There's a large amount of charity work and voluntary work. You can see that whenever there's a um, natural disaster in Australia or in other countries, an awful lot of money is raised. And the sense of uh, being willing to help out other people in Australia is still quite strong. That's all to our benefit and our children's benefit. You know, It means our society is, is a livable society. If everyone becomes very, very selfish and gives up on the uh, charity or the generosity or become a much more unpleasant place to live. One other aspect I didn't talk so much about, generosity is like, is it's a cause or a, a condition for our ultimate goal in our practice, which is Nibbana. You know, we all want to achieve Nibbana. And Nibbana means the end of suffering. Uh, refers to the mind that is free from attachment, free from suffering, free from greed, anger, delusion, the mind that is peaceful, cool, calm, happy in itself. The highest happiness is the happiness of Nibbāna. This is what the whole Buddhist path is uh, pointing us towards. So it's it's both a reflection, you know, it's something you can think of as a goal, consider this is what I'm going towards. It's also the flavour of the practice itself. You know, the, as we practice, 
It's a way of looking at our daily life, our mind and our practice to see if we're going in the right direction. You can say, am I getting more peaceful? Uh, am I going towards peace and the end of suffering in what I'm doing? Or am I creating more suffering in what I'm doing? And the practice of generosity is you know, it's supporting the arising or the, 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 the moving towards Nibbāna as an experience. If you're practicing generosity mindfully, consciously, you're consciously letting go of, of some of your attachment. Attachment to your body, to your feelings, your thoughts, your memories, your sense consciousness, what they call these five candors. Any act of generosity, you'll be letting go of some of your attachment. And you can see that some, some acts of generosity are so demanding of effort and energy that the result is that you let go of a lot you know some people they practice a lot of generosity and they don't just gain gen- um, you know happiness and feeling good but they gain a lot of other qualities as they practice generosity they gain mindfulness they gain wisdom and insight you know it's a very direct way to see this subtle teaching of not self you know when you practice Meditation, it's often we say, oh, very difficult to understand anatta, not self. How do we do that? But when you practice generosity, you can see it very easily, very directly, can't you? Because you say, like, back to the two apples. You've got two apples, you give one away, well, it's not self. For sure it's not self, because you've given it to someone else. It's theirs now. (laughs) When you practice generosity, you're seeing not self in action, aren't you? You say, oh, this is not mine, I'm giving it away. It could be a material thing or money or something, or it could be your time, just physically giving up time to help somebody else. Could even be your knowledge. You give somebody some advice or share with them some of your own knowledge, your own understanding. All of that involves giving up something that you once possessed, you know, even your knowledge you possess and you're sharing it and you give it away. So it's not self in that sense. You're not you're not trying to hold on to it or expect it to be with you forever. You're sharing it. You're giving it away. So even just giving away knowledge is, is, is a kind of generosity. And it's the highest kind of generosity, especially the knowledge that helps others to free themselves from suffering. So we say, Dhammadana, Sabadana Jinati is the highest, the, the, the dana that conquers all other dana is the dana of giving Dhamma. Giving away advice, teachings, supporting others in their practice for Nibbana. If the Buddha hadn't done that, we wouldn't even know what to do, would we? If the Buddha hadn't have been generous, we wouldn't know the path of practice if he hadn't shared with us. He actually was thinking about that the day of his enlightenment. He actually thought, oh, this, this practice is so subtle and so profound. Maybe no one will be able to understand. Maybe I won't teach. He actually thought, I'll just practice on my own. I won't teach. But then the Brahma God came down, Sahampati, and pleaded with him, begged him, please, there are those with little dust in their eyes. Please teach for the benefit of those who can practice. You know, if we hadn't had the Buddha, the kindness of the Buddha, we have, wouldn't have this way of practice. And if we hadn't had all those uh, 
practitioners since the time of the Buddha, you know, monks, the nuns, the men, the women since the time of the Buddha who have practiced and preserved the teachings through the practice, then we wouldn't know the path to practice today. This is why we remember Ajahn Chah in particular. He's the teacher I ordained with and his you say tradition or lineage of, of Sangha has uh, come all the way around the world now until this spot in, in Melbourne, Australia. If we didn't have Ajahn Chah, perhaps I would never have become a monk. Perhaps this monastery would never have happened. This hall wouldn't have been built. Everyone would be down in town watching the racing. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it would be fun, but you, I bet you wouldn't get a, as much benefit doing that. <laughs> So we've got Ajahn Chah in the modern era to thank. And Ajahn Chah would point out he had teachers. He had Ajahn Man, he had Ajahn Tongrat, Ajahn Ginnery. He had his own teachers. And that's the value of teachers. They guide you in the right way to live, the right way to practice that will be for your benefit right through your life. It's not just a one-off either. It's not like somebody who gives you money for the lottery, you want to win a million dollars on the lottery. Somebody might give you the right number, you get it. You get your million dollars, but then not long and you've used all the money, haven't you? With all those relatives and friends coming around begging for handouts and bothering you, very quickly the money will be gone. <laughs> but if somebody gives you a way of practicing Dhamma, whether you have a million dollars or not, it will last you all your life, won't it? You know, they teach you about karma, they teach you about meditation, they teach you about generosity, all these different aspects of the teaching. You can use that right through your life, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your life situation, you can make use of those teachings. So I would much rather have, have met Ajahn Chah and received teachings from him than have won the lottery for a million dollars. I don't know if everyone else is the same, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that's how I feel. The Dhamma is, you know, it's something that is is a lifesaver, isn't it? You know, if somebody's really going off the tracks, you know, the Dhamma can bring them back, can't it? It can bring them back when they're deluded, maybe mentally ill or unstable. The Dhamma can bring them back. Or when they're making unskillful choices in their life that are going to lead to all kinds of trouble for them or their relatives. You know, when people do fall under the influence of greed and go out and, and do unskillful things and the Dhamma can bring them back. Or when they become angry, you know, people become angry, what brings them back? Oh, the Dhamma. It's like that couple I was talking about a while ago, the, they, uh, the man found out his wife was cheating on him. He got so angry, he always kept a loaded pistol in his desk drawer because of the possibility of thieves or whatever. They're having a full-blown argument, so angry, he went and got the gun, pointed at his wife. So angry, she was cheating on him with another man. She's going to leave him. He ruined my life. So he pointed the gun at her, threatened her. Just at that moment, a CD of... Our teacher Ajahn Anand was on the wall. The CD fell off the wall. He saw the picture of his teacher. He thought, oh, what am I doing? I can't do this. <laughs> and he put the gun down. <laughs> That's the Dhamma, isn't it? The Dhamma is life-saving sometimes. 
The Dharma gives you the energy to do the right thing at a difficult time. Gives you the um, wisdom maybe to give someone else advice at the right time. Maybe somebody's thinking of committing suicide. You say, oh, don't do that, just come and meditate. And you come and meditate and they give up their thought to commit suicide. Or somebody is uh, you know, drinking themselves to death or doing something foolish and then you, you, you manage to use the Dhamma to help get them out of that situation. It can, it can save a life. And certainly, you know, even if you've never experienced extreme suffering like that, it can help you all the way through your life, give you the, the right guide, guidance, like a, a bright light in a dark night. You get the, the light, light shining so you can walk in the direction you want to go. And Dhamma is like that. Or it's like water in a desert. You know, you're walking through a desert and you've got no water, you're, you're in danger of dying. But once you find water, then you can go on for a long time. And Dhamma is like that. So the greatest gift is the gift of Dhamma and the greatest you know, thing for us is Dhamma, isn't it? That Dhamma is truth. If we have the truth, we understand the truth, then it helps us to, points us in the right direction in our life so that we can find true peace and happiness. So there is my one hour answer to this question today. Uh, we've just about reached the time for the next session of walking meditation. So next session is for 45 minutes and thankfully the sun has come out a bit now. So as I was saying this morning, for the walking meditation, find a spot on the veranda or outside somewhere uh, ideally you walk back and forth for maybe 20 paces. Walk at a, a normal place or, or slightly slower than normal. It helps. And you stop, start, stand still. Keep your eyes cast down so you're not looking around, getting distracted. And as you step out, concentrate on the feeling of the feet touching the ground. And as you lift your foot, and the next foot touches the ground. Just keep your awareness with the feet touching the ground, lifting up, touching the ground. And walk for you know, 10, 20 paces, stop, turn around, and then start walking back again. So you're just walking back and forwards on your path, feet touching the ground. The way Ajahn Chah used to do it, he used to use the word, the mantra, Buddho, meaning the one who knows. So as you walk, Buddho, 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 which just helps you to keep your mind in the present moment on the feet, not to get caught into daydreams or looking around. So we have 45 minutes, you can try that, just walking back and forth, Buddho, 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 until you hear the sound of the bell and then there'll be another sitting session in here. So please feel free to make your way outside.